0: And so as I was managing it, for the grazing productivity, there's a certain sweet spot where you have the right stocking rate, the right rest, the right utilization of the grass. The more I carefully managed the cattle for the birds, everything else got healthier. One of the
1: things that I really love about this is that he is preserving this for the future. You know, it's going to remain a working landscape. It's, it's likely going to have cattle for generations to come. Honestly, Brian, it brings me joy.
2: Welcome to the 275th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. On a recent afternoon in mid-May, I attended a ribbon-cutting ceremony in northeastern Iowa that exemplified what happens when a farmer blurs the boundaries between the wild and the tame. We will now trespass on the bird sanctuary, said the farmer in question, Phil Speck, as a couple dozen people passed through the gate, binoculars in hand. But this sanctuary, as Phil calls it, is not only a home to birds, it's also a working part of his farm. The ceremony was marking a special agreement Phil, along with his wife Sharon and their son John, have recently developed with the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation and the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. A lifetime agricultural easement has been placed on this 244 acres of rolling grassland and trees just up the hill from the Mississippi River town of Marquette. That means that the land can never be put into subdivisions or similar development. Just as importantly, it can never be tilled or row cropped. But what can occur on this land is that it can be grazed by livestock. To the wildlife experts who have hiked and studied the speck farm, that last allowance is not a compromise. In fact. It's because of the decades of managed rotational grazing that's taken place on these acres that this is such prime grassland bird habitat. Indeed, as I and the others hiked the pasture land, an ornithologist pointed out the numerous bluebirds and kingbirds that were perched on fence lines. And flitting around the edge where the pasture grass met a thick stand of timber were woodland-centric species such as rose-breasted grosbeaks, Baltimore Orioles, Red-Eyed vireos, Peleated Woodpeckers, and Indigo Bunnings. But the star of the day was the bobolink, that flashy, noisy black and white bird that had just arrived in the area after winging thousands of miles from South America. Bobolinks are an obligate species, meaning they rely almost 100% on a certain kind of habitat, grasslands in this case. Their presence on the speck farm was a sign that it was prime, grade A grassland habitat. That's important, given that bobolinks and other birds reliant on grass have experienced the biggest decline of any bird group in North America. The ornithologist leading the bird tour, Paul Scrady, explained that because for decades the specks have utilized a grazing system that moves cattle frequently and thus leaves plenty of vegetation behind, it produces not only healthy feed for livestock, but the kind of heterogeneous habitat that grassland birds love. Soon after he began utilizing rotational grazing to produce milk several decades ago, Phil noticed how such a system not only produced the kind of high-quality forage his cows needed, but also plenty of bird habitat. His brother, Dan Speck, was noticing similar results while rotational grazing beef cattle on a neighboring farm. The brothers sparked up a friendly competition to see which farm could fledge the most bobolinks in a given year. Dan and Phil both became amateur scientists, in a sense, and their observations have done much to advance the notion that a farm can produce food and a healthy ecosystem. In fact, when the right balance is struck, ecology and agriculture become inextricably interlinked. And a species like the bobolink can become an indicator that things are going the right direction on a farm. After Dan was killed in a haying accident in 2013, prairie ecologist Mary Dom purchased some of his land and continued managing it for grassland habitat and researching the interaction between grazing and environmental health. I should say that all of this farmland is sitting in the midst of a National Audubon Society globally important bird area, as well as the Effigy Mounds Yellow River Forest Bird Conservation Area. The Bloody Run Wildlife Management Area, which is managed by the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, is also adjacent to the land. The result is that this part of northeastern Iowa has become the home to a crucial swath of publicly and privately owned wildlife habitat, something that's particularly important given how much of the rest of the region is dominated by corn and soybean monocrops. Ecologists have long argued that having isolated islands of habitat is not enough. The ideal situation is to have nature reserves bordering working farmland that's being managed in a regenerative manner, thus extending environmental benefits across a broad spectrum of the landscape. After all, bobolinks don't respect property boundaries. No wonder the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation jumped at the chance to grant an easement to the spec farm and keep it in well-managed grass. Over the years, I've visited the spec land numerous times, and I never fail to be impressed by what can result when innovative livestock farmers and open-minded ecological scientists come together over a mutual desire to save a common resource. In this case, that resource is grass, a habitat that's being decimated across the Midwest by intensive row cropping. That's why the creation of a permanent bird sanctuary on working farmland is so important. It's a recognition that agriculture and ecology are not mutually exclusive. After the ribbon cutting ceremony and birding tour, I talked to Phil Specht and Paul Scrady about this example of striking a balance between the wild and the tame and creating a working grassland ecosystem. Phil started our discussion by describing when he first noticed that careful pasture management and prime bird habitat went hand in hand and how that led to what we see on his land today.
0: Yeah, it probably was in the 80s. And I had been doing kind of just simple rotational grazing. I had never heard of a paddock. Now there's several different kinds of grazing. So those that understand the terminology, I do management adaptive grazing on the line of what's been developed by Mississippi State. Dr. Alan Williams does promotes that kind of grazing. And there, I did, as a dairyman, get the cows on foot day after day, all summer long, after starting pasturing in 1974. And so, 74 onward, I was out there at sunrise, and you can't can't miss them. If you're out in the pasture, there's going to be birds singing. It was a subliminal message that they were sending to me at that time. I wasn't farming for the birds. And then the 80s hit, and there were such tough times, and the margins were so thin, we went to what was called sustainable agriculture. And then it got called low-input sustainable agriculture. And now there's a term that is generally used for all the umbrella term for the different kinds of grazing and using grazing that's called regenerative agriculture. So in in the 80s, I went to this low-input sustainable agriculture and started cutting back on my row crops. And what I found was in these long rotations, if you involve legumes, you don't need to buy high-priced nitrogen; it's there in the soil. So that was a one of the eye openers: is I don't have to buy fertilizer. And the research at Iowa State says there's 900 pounds of available potash at any one time, and so you don't need potash and phosphate if you are returning the manure of well-fed cattle back to the land. Uh, manure has been found to the th- th- phosphorus threshold levels exceed. Very high. So you don't need phosphorus, you don't need potash, you don't need nitrogen. So, but it was in the 80s, and uh, I was pioneering grazing at the time. It was prior to what has become the popular way of grazing and just learning as I went. So I found that I had to observe. If you measure something, collect the data and the accumulation of the, the uh, scientific significance of one thing is zero, and your eyes are drawn to the exception. Your eyes will be drawn to the exception, but you want to learn as uh, managing the grass for cattle is to be able to see it as what's available there at that time, and if you take it with cattle, how much and how long that it will need to rest to get back to a productive next pass. Not intensive, I'll say I do not have management intensive, which would may mean higher stocking rates and utilizing trampling. When did I become cognizant of the birds? And it was uh, in the 80s, just because I was out there every day at dawn and heard them singing. At that time, my brother Dan and I were in a partnership and he had beef cattle and I had the dairy cattle. But if one of us wanted to go on vacation or go do something political or go to a land stewardship project board meeting like Dan was doing, I would do his chores, which included the beef cattle chores. And then when I was doing something and he would come and do my chores. And so we traded back and forth and did a lot of talking about what was working and what we'd heard and he would go to practical farmers meetings and I'd go to pasture walks so we'd trade this information and it wasn't really until I understood that as corn and soybeans were just taking over the landscape to the point where all the trees were gone all the fields were tiled all the sloughs were now cropland and there was just this year after year attrition of habitat so I decided my farm doesn't have to be that way. I'm. I was a pre-theology student at Wartburg College. I never went to the seminary, but I did lay preach a couple of sermons. And my favorite uh, Bible passage is Noah. And when God had to choose between man and biodiversity, biodiversity won. Once I started to really study what my farm was doing on a on a uh, natural level, so then Dan and I got into this. Well, you plow. I point a finger at him. You're destroying the mycorrhizal fungi, the bacteria that all that estab- has, the roots have all this network established, and as soon as you moldboard plow it to grow organic soybeans, it's out the window. You've got to start all over again. Plows are really hard on the microbiome. Dan and I would have these intense arguments just over organic versus uh, sustainable, these different labels. My understanding of how nature works is labels aren't really out there. There's filling of all the different layers needed to work together as a community, whether it's the insects, the birds, the plants or the microbiome, to fully utilize the real real miracle of living on this planet, Birds are an important part of that. And my brother Dan and I just kind of figured out that if you have bobolinks, that's a real good indicator species. If you got bobolinks out there, you've got a working grassland ecosystem. Well, Dan had a working grassland ecosystem. He had bobolinks. I had a working grassland ecosystem. I had bobolinks. Who had the most? So we started measuring and counting bobolinks. And that sibling rivalry is one of the things that ended up being a bird sanctuary that was special for bobbling. So that might have been the start of this really looking at birds as how they fit into my way of farming. And it was the last year that I grew any crops of any kind. I had a crop of barley. And uh, since then, no fertilizer. It's been all grass. I, I seeded a, a broad mixture of different legumes and grasses, all commercially available cheap seed compared to if you buy wildflowers by the quarter ounce you know I was buying 50 pound bags so I have brome and timothy and orchard grass and some reed canary grass and I've got alcyc and ladino and alice and, and uh, Birdsfoot foot trefoil and Birdsfoot tree trefoil has been very persistent and good legume I had a lot of alfalfa I gradually hated it till it disappeared so we're going through this progression 80's 88 to the 90's the rival, rivalry started with Dan in the 90s, uh, so it carried on into and ended up being a bird sanctuary in the end here. So it was this combination of a family experience, having a brother that, w- that was also interested in the same things, but at the same time would never admit that I would be doing things better than he was doing. And that old sibling, brother rivalry thing was always strong between the two of us, And uh, it worked to great advantage for Bobolinks.
2: Well, we re- certainly saw that today. And as we were going back through it, the the two hundred and forty some acres there, seeing the Bobolinks, seeing they couldn't believe all that it was just this, that, and the other thing, a lot of birds out there, and here we are. And it was middle of the day, and usually that's not a prime time to see birds, but they were out there. There was a couple dozen people that were here today, you know, a lot of people from the area, but a fair number of them were birders and environmentalists. What's that feel like to be able to show them that there can be this connection between working lands conservation and uh, a healthy ecosystem? I mean, it must be a pretty cool feeling.
0: Well, it, it is the, the million-dollar question for conservation is how do you marry landowners mm-hmm. with the conservation ethic and not just environmentalists? Yeah. Because the vast landscape is owned by farmers in private property. Mm-hmm. And so to bring, and, and Aaron Van Wasse of the Abenatcha Heritage Foundation alluded to that, It was over a year for the two of us to work out the details of what it would make this to be a bird sanctuary that was a working agriculture landscape. What I'm trying to do and what I've been trying to do since the 80s is do this, uh, fit that together, the working agriculture landscape with conservation. And then for me, I think it was probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, I started leaning to doing little stuff like a tree would fall down in the edge of the pasture, and I'd fence around it. And if I saw a sedge wren, I'd put a little hot wire around it. And then, uh, so it, by, say, 2008, I was creating purposefully bird habitat. But I would get the cows at daybreak. So I was out there at sunrise every day listening to the birds. And I, th- I think that's what really just put me off the deep end into being creating as my legacy a and our legacy, Dan and my legacy. Uh, Mary's got to continue that on her property, but the legacy is a bird sanctuary in a working agriculture landscape.
2: So you, as we went through that gateway that's their sanctuary, you said, okay, we're now trespassing on the sanctuary of the birds, but also isn't just going to be left to grow up into grass or whatever. You're going to be still managing that as farm. You're going to be grazing that. You're still going to be doing your rotational grazing. When we went there, I saw the rotational grazing paddock set up. So I think that's an important thing for the folks to see, too. It isn't just a wilderness area or, an, or a state park or whatever or a wildlife refuge. This is still on a working farm. And that that, that's part of why that grass is going to be good grass. Otherwise, it's going to get taken over
0: by invasives, that kind of thing. It's a a very important part of my observation is that the more I carefully manage the cattle for the birds, everything else got healthier. I got, saw more wildflowers, I saw more birds, more different species of birds. And so as I was managing it for the grazing productivity, there's a certain sweet spot where you have the right stocking rate, the right rest, the right utilization of the grass. And that's come from decades of observation on my part. It'd be real hard to read in a book and say, this is the way I'm gonna do it and prescribe it. And farmers, farming is so very tough economically that I wouldn't begin to tell any other farmer how to treat their land, but I would tell them how to learn to understand what's underneath their feet. The more you're out there, the more you observe. So you have to decide, do you want to work with nature or against it?
2: Paul Scrady, who's an associate professor of biology at Upper Iowa University, then explained to me why the kind of grazing the specs carry out is so beneficial to grassland songbirds and what kind of message this small example of working lands conservation in action sends to the wider community.
1: So this is a working landscape and it, and it is really neat because with Phil's take-half-leave-half strategy where he, he rotates these uh, his cattle through there in a really intentional practice. Uh, it creates a really diverse structure, and that's what these bird species, the the diversity of the birds, uh, respond to. So even though it's it's a lot of pasture species, so uh, like orchard grass and things that um, aren't native native species. Um, the, the structure is what the birds are responding to. And, and we're seeing just a great mix of, of grass and birds in there. So some species that you find everywhere that there's bare ground, so you picture something like a killdeer that, that just needs a gravel patch to, to nest on, um, are nesting in the tracks. But then uh, we've got meadow larks that like kind of the shorter grass in there, all the way up to Henslow's sparrows, which want really old thatch. Um, so long Phil's fence lines in there. He's got some areas where the cattle really aren't, aren't getting access to. And so there's some really mature grass and shrubby areas in there too. Um, and, and even today we had like orchard orioles, which are not a, a grassland bird species, but like kind of that, that shrubby sort of habitat too. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really great thing because it's, it's a working landscape. But the, the wildlife diversity is, is responding to it. And, and like you said, usually picture you need wilderness for, for wildlife. But in this case, no, we've, we've got cattle and these birds are moving along in that same space with them too.
2: I think the one thing that really strikes me is this idea that creating that heterogeneity across the landscape, that seems like such a key, because it is, again, I think people think of, well, if we could have this kind of consistent... You know, everything looks the same, but, like, we, we took a walk back in there. We mm-hmm. saw that kind of edge area between the woodlands and the, the pastured or the grass system, and, man, the birds were going. You could hear them going crazy back in there i mean that any anything i guess that you can create that diversity or that heterogeneity seems like a really key
1: yep that's exactly it brian and and even within the forest stands next to phil's property there there's heterogeneity that exists too so there's some older timber that that was never harvested or wasn't for a very long time and then some open patches and there's as well from um, some areas where people had harvested timber. There were some areas where trees had fallen down. So like within the forest and then within the grassland there, it's an area of high heterogeneity. Do you think,
2: I mean, do you think about it as somebody who's very much into the ecosystem in this part of Iowa and seeing kind of the black desert we have with the corn-soybean right. system? What, what what kind of a message do you like, I mean, you know, coming on to this today? I mean, what do you bring away from that? What is it just a nice little piece of nature we've got, or could this maybe send a bigger message about some of the kind of the diverse ecosystem that we can have in the midst of uh, all this farmland.
1: Well, honestly, Brian, it brings me joy because it is, it is so important. And when I think about what Phil does, he actually has a really huge following on Facebook. And, and a lot of people get quite a bit of joy from the photos that he shares of the, the birds and the things that he sees on his, on his property. But, but your bigger point about, okay, this, this on a larger landscape is only a small piece. Um, but it is meaningful. And, and one of the things that I really love about this is that he is preserving this for the future. You know, it's going to remain a working landscape. It's, it's likely going to have cattle for generations to come. And creating that disturbance that we were talking about a minute ago, I mean, it's one of those things in today's market. Phil could have made a whole lot of money selling that to, to recreational users or, um, or to producers as well. Um, that would likely have have changed that that habitat, and so it it really does bring my heart joy when i when I go onto that property and I think about how it is being used, and will continue to be used into the future, and still benefiting wildlife. And that, that's why I brought my students up here. So when I teach wildlife management, um, I, I actually do a joint field trip with another professor who teaches the soil genesis and, and classification class, and we we have a lot of overlap in that class. And so we do a, a pretty major all-day field trip where we leave early in the morning from, from Fayette and bring a busload of students up here, actually two busloads of students up here, and uh, we visited Phil and Mary's farms, uh, and Phil was able to talk to the students about how he, it is a working landscape and that you can be a producer and still end up with wildlife. And, and Phil's got great data about how, I mean, his animals are productive too. It's not just that he's doing these agricultural practices, but like he had the dairy yields, you know, like he actually had a really great production from the land too. It wasn't that he was sacrificing to have the birds, for example, um, he actually was, was really productive. Uh, I bring the students up here. We, we do some soil work on, on his property and on Mary's property. But then we also go to a land that's managed very differently. So we go to Effigy Mounds, which is uh, one of the only national monuments in the area, um, and but has been used by Native peoples for uh, many, many thousands of years. And then also to Bloody Run, which is, is where we're at right now. Um, the Bloody Run Wildlife Management Area is just across the road here, which is, again, recreational habitat and, and beautiful trout streams. And we also do a visit to Supreme Beef, and your, your followers can do some Googling about Supreme Beef and, and the connections with Bloody Run to, to learn more about that. Again, having the students connect food and wildlife and this amazing area we think is really, really important. As
2: a birding expert and somebody who really pays attention to this stuff, one of the things that Phil talks a lot about is the the value of a bird like a Bobolink as an indicator species about how healthy the the grassland system is in general. is that is that what do you think about that? Is that uh, a very it's a pretty because that's something that farmers and people in general are always looking for is, What's an indica- What's something I can quickly look at to right. see that I'm doing the right thing for
1: the land? Bobolinks are a really great indicator species uh, when we think about grassland habitat because they do need that, that heterogeneity we were talking about earlier. And as compared to something like I said earlier, like a kilder, like they're a grassland bird but they'll nest in a parking lot. But something like a Bobolink or, or Henslow sparrow and other species I mentioned earlier that, that really does need some of that older thatch as well. Yeah, those indicator species can be really valuable, just like we use indicator species to look at water quality, too. So the invertebrates that you've got in Bloody Run can tell you how clean the water is right now. Uh, same sort of thing a bobolink can tell you about the health of your grassland because of their, their presence and abundance on that, that property.
2: For more on the Speck family's work to strike a balance between wildlife habitat and working farmland, see the links on the podcast page for episode number 275 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at BDVore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Grounds theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.